continue our program. We're looking through the great gospel of Matthew. We're going to now come to chapter 3 of Matthew. And I just want to set the scene a little bit. We've had chapters 1 and 2 now over the past few weeks. Matthew now jumps forward to adulthood for Jesus and who we're going to see here today as well, John the Baptist. Um, if you look in the Gospel of Luke, there's a bit more embellishment as to some of what's happened in between, notably about the birth of John the Baptist as well and who he is and the significance he bears. So I just want to set the scene a little bit before we look at the DVD. We're going to look at the whole chapter on the DVD in just a second. But This is the first time we meet these two people, Jesus and John, in adulthood. We've already met them, if we've read through Luke as well, of course. We've already met both of them as kids, certainly as babies as well. They are related. John the Baptist, in case you're not already aware, John the Baptist and Jesus are related. Their mothers are relatives. We don't know specifically. We think they're some kind of cousin. But uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mum, is described as a relative, is the word that's often used, a relative of Mary, which we believe to be some kind of cousin. So effectively, Jesus and John the Baptist are some kind of second cousins. They've already met as babies before they were born. I think this is really funky. This is amazing. Mary, when she first finds out she's pregnant, she goes to stay with Elizabeth, who is six months rotund. She's six months ahead of her. And uh, when, they, when they get together, you find out, in Luke chapter 1, you find out that Elizabeth, John's mum, she gets filled with the Spirit, and John leaps in the womb <laughs> as a result at Jesus' presence. I think this is amazing. If anyone ever asks the question, can kids get baptised in the Spirit? <laughs> the answer is yes, because it happens in the womb as well. This is, it, just, it blows my mind. It's amazing. What a sovereign, amazing God that he dares to do things like that as well. I think it's fantastic. But this just proves the point that Jesus and John, their relationship is fueled by the Holy Spirit, even from before they're born. It's a fantastic relationship they got together. When the angel Gabriel speaks to John's dad, Zechariah, he explains, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It's possible. Pray big prayers for those kids out there. Okay, keep praying for them. Keep praying. When John gets born, his dad, Zechariah, until then, has been mute since the moment he was conceived. When the angel Gabriel comes to speak to John, I've got, we've got a DVD at home. If you want to borrow it, the Nativity is made a few years ago, and it dramatises this scene when um, Zechariah is spoken to. It's, it's, it's done really, really well. It's worth, it's worth checking out the DVD, but it just helps bring it, bring it to a bit more embellishment in your head. But when the angel Gabriel speaks to Zechariah, John becomes mute as a result. It becomes a sign for the people around them later on. He's mute for the entire duration of the... Sorry? Zechariah, sorry. You're mouthing, not John. Sorry. Get my names muddled up. You know who I meant. Zechariah becomes mute for the duration of the pregnancy. When John gets born, the first words his dad, Zechariah, gets to say is, his name is John. He gets to speak for the first time in nine months. Then he continues to prophesy over his newborn son. It's an amazing prophecy. Luke chapter 1. It's an 80-verse chapter. It's a huge chapter. It's, read through it. It's fantastic. And he says to his newborn son, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is John's corner. We're going to see a little bit of it here in a minute. The last verse of Luke chapter 1 then continues to say, the child, this is John, grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now we're going to find out what happens as we meet them both as adults. You can watch the DVD. We're going to leap forward about from there about 28, 30 years' time. Let's see what happens. The Baptist, reaching the desert of Judea and saying, 
This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, O brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you until you come to me. Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented.
they saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. That's a preview of what's going to happen next week. Let's just pray, and then we'll dig deep. Lord, we just ask for your help this morning as, uh, as I bring what I feel you've asked me to bring, Lord. May importantly, more importantly, may be your message, not mine, Lord. May each one of us in this room, myself included, may we hear from you by your Spirit, through your Word, and may we have something we can act upon, chew upon. May we go away from here different, impacted, challenged, God willing, changed as well. But Lord, speak to us, we pray. In your name. Amen. Amen. There's three aspects of this passage I want to look at. If you've already turned to it in your Bibles as well, Matthew chapter 3. I'll be referring to a few of those verses, some of what happens there. Three aspects I want to... If we can have the um, slide up as well, please, Helen. Cheers, mate. There's three, three points I just want to make that I feel are important to us here and now, not just us in the Western world, 2011, but I mean to us as Beacon as well. Three things. First, serving well in obscurity. I think this is important. We'll be looking at that in a minute. It's, quite, it's almost an underlying bit of subtext at the beginning of this, this uh, chapter we can miss out on if we're not careful. Uh, bearing fruit in keeping re- with repentance. This is part of John's message. I feel that's important to us as well. And thirdly, also about partnership with the Holy Spirit. This, this building is a bit of a recurrent theme uh, in the background here at Beacon. It's something we're talking about and actually putting into practice more. And I think it's something we need to focus on again this morning. So those are the three points I'd like to look at. First of all, serving well in obscurity. What do I mean by this and why are we looking at that? Where have John and Jesus been for the past 20 to 30 years. They suddenly appear on the world stage, effectively, as they get more and more known publicly. What have they been up to? We know John has been in the wilderness because the last verse of Luke chapter 1 says, from that point on, from when he was born, and his dad prophesies over him, from that point on he was in, he was in the wilderness. All right up until that point when he starts baptising people in the river there. The wilderness is, a, is an area just south of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It's known as the wilderness of Judea. So he's been living there for all that time. But where's Jesus been? What's he been up to? Some people love conspiracy theories and people love the fact that he allegedly went to India and Tibet and started studying other faiths or something. There's no concrete evidence for it and people like it and latch onto it because it means you can dilute Christianity and prove it's false, etc. Et Do you know what I mean? They like to mix up faiths. People like that kind of thing. There's no evidence for it at all. Where's Jesus been for? The last time we would have seen him would again been in Luke. And the beginning of Luke describes him as a 12-year-old at the temple in Jerusalem. So we know what he's been up to there and then. He has a bit of a kerfuffle with his parents. They lose him. Um, but that's the last time we've seen him. For Jesus, he's been missing, as far as we're aware publicly, for 18 years. What's he been up to? He hasn't been to India and Tibet and checking out the Himalayas and taking nice photos of the rhododendrons there. He too has been living in obscurity. He's been at home, serving, being a part of the family. We know he's a family man, he loves friends, he loves parties. 
That's the kind of thing he's been up to. I'm not going to try and give you specific details of what he'd definitely been doing, because we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's a reason for that. He's just been doing his thing in obscurity. What I just want to try and do is paint a little picture of the kind of thing he's been up to. He's been at home, in his hometown, enjoying family, enjoying friends, probably, actually, running the house as the man of the house, because as far as we can tell, his, dad, his earthly dad, Joseph, died, otherwise he would have got mentioned because his mum is now, when she gets mentioned later on, she's on her own. And he even asked one of the disciples, John, to look after her as well, later on. So as far as we can tell, at some point Joseph has died. Jesus being the firstborn would end up being the man in the house, running the household, probably facilitating his sister's marriages, all sorts of things. More importantly, he'd also been learning his father's, his earthly father's trade. The carpenter mason, he'd have been doing that as well. He was simply living in obscurity. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. I just want to make this point before we move on a little bit further. Don't despise obscurity. It's a temptation. You can, we all like to be, we all seek approval to varying degrees, some more than others, but we all seek approval. We all like recognition from other people. That was really good what you did. I like that, I mean, even this morning, I like that song you wrote. It's, it's great, but I have to guard my heart in that kind of thing, don't I? We all do. We all seek approval from people. We have to be very, very careful. And so often, sometimes, we can feel we're in obscurity. We can feel we're not being recognised. This is something for us as Beacon in a little bit. I'll talk about this later. Us as Beacon as a whole as well. But also just as individuals. Sometimes we can fear obscurity, feel we're being left out, we're being missed, we're being ignored, nobody's noticing us. Don't despise obscurity. Jesus didn't. He quite happily served in his hometown, doing his thing, being a carpenter mason, looking after his mum and his brothers and sisters. There's nothing wrong with that. Your father sees what is done in secret. That's what's important. Just want to make that point. Conversely, though, as well as not despising obscurity, don't use that, then, in false humility as an excuse to not step out. Because then you can use that and go, well, I don't want to stand at the front of church and I don't want to be noticed. Or You can actually be kind of falsely humble as well. Sometimes we are called to step out. Jesus and John were. Okay? Sometimes we are called to step out. God puts gifts in us. He gives us callings. When you know God wants you to exercise a gift and you're frightened to, don't use, oh, well, it's good to not be noticed and that sort of thing. Don't use that as an excuse either. We need to get a balance here, okay? When God's calling you to step out, be it in bringing a tongue, a prophetic word, even just a scripture on a Sunday, speaking out in cell groups, speaking out in the workplace, whatever it is, if God's calling you to step out, do so as well. John the Baptist was the ultimate recluse. I mean, he looks a bit like a local nutter. It's like some kind of character of one of Amy's horrible histories program. It's an amazing wig he's got. It's fantastic. But John the Baptist didn't have a wig, I'm sure. He was the ultimate recluse, but he was still called to a public ministry. There came a point when God called him out of obscurity into doing something public, which was quite massive, to be honest, for John the Baptist. He was called to herald the Messiah, to herald Jesus. He was a prophet. God spoke through him. The nation of Israel had not heard of God via a prophet for 400 years. This is something quite significant going on here. There came a point when he had to step out, scary as it might have been. I don't know how frightened he was. I don't know if he was bold enough just to get on with the job. He might have been nervous about the fact that he's got to go out and say these things that he knows God's putting in his heart. There came a point where he had to step out. Don't despise obscurity. Don't use that as an excuse not to step out either. Neither, though, go the other way and keep asking, when will I be recognised? Guard your heart in this as well. There always needs to be a balance struck here. Just be careful. 
Jenny and I, one of our old pastors, some years back, he, t- he told us a story when someone had just started coming along to the church. We never knew this person. Started coming along to the church, very quickly presented our pastor with a list of all the things he's good at. Most of it was front of house stuff, to be honest. Little sirens going off. This is what I can do. Where do you want me? Our pastor very wisely said, folded it up, bin, filed it in the bin probably. Serve amongst the people, do your thing, serve well. When it's appropriate, we'll raise you up as and where we feel is right. The guy quickly disappeared. Guard your heart, don't look to be recognised, look to be recognised by our Father in heaven who sees what is done in secret. When the time is right, he will put things on your heart. When it's time to step out, don't be frightened to either. Remember, I, I preached, uh, when was it, in November, about the small things, serving well in the small things, like King David. It's exactly the same. Serve well in the small things. Don't ask, when will I be recognised? You already are by your heavenly Father, who thinks the world of you. He sent his son for you. He thinks that much of you. Serve well in obscurity. When you're called to step out, step out. Find a little bit more about John the Baptist himself. We know some details about him, not a huge amount, but as well as his birth, we all know a little bit about him that we've read in this chapter as well. Even Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, talks about John the Baptist as well. He's not just only found in the Gospels. He's born to devout parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, born of a priestly line. Zechariah serves in the temple. John is now in his 30s and he fulfills the coming of a new Elijah. Elijah's a prophet, you can read about it in Kings 2 in the Old Testament. And there, was a, there are prophecies that talk about there is a new Elijah who will come, who will herald the Messiah. These are the prophecies that John fulfills. He even wears the same clothes as Elijah. He's mentioned here in chapter 3, verse 4, he's described as wearing uh, clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a, le- had a leather belt around his waist. I don't know if he had anything on underneath. A decent pair of pants, I don't know. But he certainly looked a bit odd, didn't he? He certainly did. That, that, that much we do know. Then he goes on to say his food was locusts and wild honey. I've heard some people describing those locusts as a certain kind of bean. I actually think the word in there is actually yeah, locusts. I am sure this guy would have won. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. <laughs> you imagine it. I mean, some of those Z-list celebrities who couldn't eat the head of a grasshopper you can imagine John the Baptist waiting to give me a bowl of them. Where's my mayonnaise? He'd just, oh, lovely. He'd have a bit of that. He's, he's a local nutter. To, on, on face value, you see, when he first comes out, I just wanted to laugh, to be honest. They've dressed him well. Just to, just to make the point, actually. Not to make it cheesy, but to make the point. This guy's pretty wacky. He spent decades in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey, wearing camel's hair and a leather belt to keep it on. Every community tends to have this kind of local character. The kids love this. When I was growing up, where I was, there was a lady down the road who was a little bit weird and had long grey hair and there was something not quite right about it. I mean, God bless her. I'm sure she was lovely. If I sat down with her as an adult, I'm sure I'd have found out she was fine. But kids love this kind of thing. And kids create this kind of celebrity effect about local weirdos sometimes. And the stories we told about this lady and the things you can find in her basement are horrible, really, to be honest. Kids are pretty cruel, but kids love this kind of thing. But John was one of these kind of characters that kids would have latched onto. I wonder what I, how I would have perceived him if I'd met him. To be honest, we read about him as this great John the Baptist. He comes with his reputation before we even read about him, doesn't he, in the Bible, John the Baptist. If I was there and then, I'd have, would I have written him off? 
to be honest. The point is this, which is why I'm glad they dressed him that way as well, not, not, didn't dress him in a Hollywood-style camel hair, but actually made him to look a bit weird. The point is this, his clothing and his demeanour show his single, unwavering focus and vision. He doesn't care about clothes. He doesn't care about food. God will provide that. He's got a calling to fulfil, and he's going to do it well. <laughs> Always be aware of what's going on behind the scenes. For us today, this bears implications for us now. We can be so caught up with our stuff, especially in the Western world, as high cost of living is going up and wages are being frozen or going down and we worry we can't buy enough stuff. We've still got enough stuff over here, haven't we? Flipping it. <laughs> so much stuff, it's starting to own us again, isn't it? We've got to be so careful, but our stuff can get in the way. John never worried about stuff like that. John had his mind on one thing and one thing only, and that was serving the purposes that God had for him. Is my primary focus on mobile phones or cars or sport or food or clothing or what? Do you know what I mean? Is, is my primary focus on that kind of thing or is my primary focus on my Jesus and his purposes for me and for us? It's a question we need to keep asking. I need to keep asking myself. What do you think about most? Just a question I'm going to leave with you. But What, what do you think about most? Don't answer that is my primary focus Jesus and his purpose? Because we all think of the right answer. Well, yeah, yes, I'll struggle a bit, but of course it is. We really need to be honest with ourselves sometimes. What do I think about most? Is it Jesus? Is it the implications of what I've learnt in the words? Or is it stuff? Let's leave that with you. John was already immersed in the word as well. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't say this directly, but it's quite clear indirectly. And the reason I say this is because when he's in prison later on, when his followers come and ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? Jesus doesn't say yes. How does Jesus answer? With scripture. When John's followers say, are you the Messiah? Jesus simply says, blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cured, the deaf can hear, the dead are raised, good news is preached to the poor. That's his answer, leaves it at that. Because he knows all he needs to do is give evidence from Scripture to John and John will know he's the Messiah. John was steeped and immersed in the word of God. His whole demeanour comes from the heart because he's feasting on the word of God. He's accepted God's calling. He's set his primary aim on that above all things, above clothes and food. His heart was not modelled by the world, was not moulded, sorry, by the world, by peers, by fear of man, anything like that. It's just something I want to leave with you. Serve well in obscurity. Step out when you need to. Okay, the second point, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. As a result of John's whole heart being in the right place in the first place, he's not afraid to act and he's not afraid to speak out. He's got quite a boldness. He, later on, he's locked up and eventually killed as well for speaking out, speaking out against Herod, the local ruler. Herod has taken on his brother-in-law's wife and it's her daughter that instigates John's death, his beheading later on as well. John's not afraid to speak out against this and tell him it's wrong to the local ruler. He could have shut up and just ignored it. He made a point of speaking out. He's not afraid to because he knew it was wrong and knew God wanted him to say so. 
But also, you see him in this chapter, we saw him. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those guys with the long, funny robes, posh bit of uniform, when they turned up, what did he call them? Brood of vipers. Ooh, that might not be particularly strong language in, a, in our world of lots of Fs and Bs, but back then that was quite full on. What he's saying to these guys who are supposed to be respected religious and political leaders, he's telling them you are sly, you creep, and you've got a deadly bite. He's not afraid to say that. These guys were self-righteous and unbelieving, and he wasn't afraid to tell them that. His message, John's message, was good news to the people. The Messiah is coming. I'm going to baptise you for repentance. This is good news. But these are warnings of judgment to the people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were opposing him and their pride was getting in the way. True humility before God brings repentance and salvation, which is why these people were coming to him for baptism. There was true repentance going on in their hearts and they knew what they needed and they came for it. But thinking we know better than God, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees did, leads to, ultimately, that's the path to destruction. And he wasn't afraid to tell them that. He keeps saying, verse 8, he says to the people, and in fact to the Pharisees and Sadducees themselves, specifically he says, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He's not saying, do good things, change your ways, because that's not necessarily a change of heart, is it? He's saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's making sure they get the fact that it starts in here. When there's a heart's change, there's naturally an outward change, isn't there? And the Pharisees and Sadducees, the hearts were so much in the wrong place, the fruit was not in keeping with repentance because there wasn't any repentance in the first place. This is what he was saying to them. Then what does he say, verse 9, to them? And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He's saying to them, don't rely on your bloodline, on your lineage. Don't think, well, I'm a Jew, I'm a member of God's people, we must be okay. Their lineage, their bloodline will not save them. He said, baptism presumes repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's like John said last week, knowledge doesn't save us. Bloodline doesn't save us either. For example, I know my films inside out. So much so, you all think I'm a geek, and I don't mind. But as much as I know a cast list, what year a film was made, I can spot a film in two seconds when I walk in a room. I know what film it is. It's a bit worrying, actually. Uh, (laughs) But as much as I know these things, as much as I know who directed it and who his director of photography was and how they did the lighting and how they did the special effects and some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff, how that script is crafted in such a way that that embellishes that bit later and I can see all the connections. I know why that actor did that a certain way because he's practiced that before in a previous film. As much as I know this stuff, that doesn't make me a film director, does it? You need to apply knowledge. As much as you can know all the rules of cricket, for example, doesn't make you a cricketer. I thought, I thought the Ashes finished last year. And then it kept on going. What's all that about? I'm confused. I'm not a cricket fan, as you can probably tell. Sorry, Roy. But, cool, dear, didn't it go on? My life. As much as knowing the rules of cricket, you can know them inside out. But it doesn't make you a cricketer. You need to apply the knowledge. You need to put it into practice. 
And again, another question for you right now. Does your life, just be honest with yourself, don't have to shout it out loud, just think to yourself during the week, does my life, bar a couple of meetings in the week, does my life look any different to a non-believer? Really. We need to make sure we're applying our knowledge. We can have it all up here and it doesn't affect here. We've got to be so careful. This is why John was baptising. Why is he called John the Baptist? Why was he baptising? Some people prefer to call him John the Baptizer. He's not John the Baptist, because then you're looking for David the Methodist, Brian the non-denominational, Steve the New Frontiers guy. He's John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, I don't mind. I think it's quite funny, really. Why was he baptising, though? Where, where did baptism come from? It suddenly appears at the beginning of the New Testament. Where did baptism come from? The truth is, it's nothing new, actually. Jews were baptising then, Jews still baptise now. They baptised Gentile, non-Jew converts. It's a part of the uh, representation of what's happened to these people. They converted to the Jewish faith. It's still part of the traditional rituals for converts. They use this ritual bath called a mikvah. It represents purity. It represents a change of status, which in some ways is similar to why we practice baptism as well. They do it by full immersion, exactly the same as you saw just then. It's similar to why we do ours, but ours signifies so much more, doesn't it? I'm going to speak about that in a second, but first of all, yes, the Jews baptised converts then. Who was John baptising? Jews. What's going on there? Curious, isn't it? What's he doing? There's two reasons why he's baptising. He's baptising so that the nation might be prepared for the Christ. He's saying effectively, yes, you think you're okay, but Jewish or not, bloodline or not, you're not okay unless you repent and honour Christ as Saviour and Lord, as Messiah. If you don't, you're still lost, as much as the Gentiles. He's also doing it that he might present Jesus. He might not have realised right at the time when he started baptising that God was setting him up for Jesus' introduction to public ministry. But even John himself recognises later on, in John chapter 1, verse 31, John in reflection says, the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. He then recognised God was setting him up to baptise people to get a message across to them that Jewish or not, there needs to be a change of heart and a genuine repentance and a turning to Christ inside. But also that this set the stage for Jesus to be revealed at the beginning of his public ministry. But again, still, on that fact, why was he baptising Jews? Why did he need to still? Baptism is an outward demonstration of what's occurred inside, which is why we practise it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hadn't changed on the inside. He wasn't going to baptise them, even if they asked for it. I doubt they would have done. Baptism is found in 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 Israel's salvation through the Dead Sea as they pass through the water, uh, in the ark, the Noah's family being saved through the flood. Baptism referred to that. You read about it in the New Testament. Peter talks about it as well. So it alludes to that kind of salvation. So Israel in their history had an understanding of what baptism was all about to start with, some basics. And then it finds new depths in Jesus, which is why we practice baptism by full immersion. Jewish baptism for converts, was about washing, about ritual purification. It's a regular thing. It's not, it's not just a one-off. 
our baptism that we practice as, as exhorted by Jesus by the New Testament writers represents a once-only act that represents publicly what has gone inside, which is death and life. We are dead to our old self. We are alive in a new life in Christ. We are born again in Christ. We are dead to our old life, literally and spiritually. Yes, we still fight the flesh. And the Bible recognises that as well. But spiritually, you have a new life in Christ. Your old is, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. Which is why we practice, practice uh, baptism by full immersion. It represents, as you go under the water, represents the moment you die to your old self and you come back up out of the water, new life in Christ. That's the difference between our baptism and the Jewish baptism. Which is why it's fascinating that verses 6 and 7 of this chapter 3 just, just, just verse 6. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. He didn't get hold of them and force them into the water. They were coming to him. They were confessing their sins. They were coming to him voluntarily to be baptised because they recognised the need for more than just purification and cleansing by ritual. They recognised a heart change was needed they recognised that despite their bloodline as Jews, they weren't safe. Their hearts needed to be in the right place. They recognised that they were still unable to fulfil the law that God had given them to keep them right before him. Finally, the law was making sense to them that we can't fulfil this. Something, needs to fulf- something else, someone else needs to fulfil this. And the only person who was able to fulfil that law is Jesus. We still can't fulfil that kind of law, can we? which is why Jesus lived the perfect life. He's the only person who could. That was the point. Only one person could do that. These people recognised that. They came confessing their sins and they came and got baptised voluntarily by John. So don't despise obscurity. Step out when you need to. Serve God in the small things. Secondly, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're not bearing fruit, then just question where your heart's at right now. That's all I have to say. If your heart's in the right place, you'll naturally bear fruit. You won't be able to help it. Thirdly, we're just going to look at a theme that I say has been building in Beacon just recently, and I think we need to continue to focus on this. Partnership with the Holy Spirit. Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives. I never knew he had an American accent. (laughs) How did they know? Amazing. Jesus arrives. How does he arrive? There's no grandstanding monologue. No big jetpack moment, is there, when he lands. There's no immediate spectacle. There isn't a minute when he gets baptised. But initially, he just comes with utter humility. This is the Son of God. This is eternal God who made John. Get your head around that one. And he asks John to baptise him. Talk about humility. This is phenomenal, isn't it? It's amazing. He leads by example. There's verse 15. John's tried to deter him and he said, I I need to be baptised by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, verse 15, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. Christ fulfilled the law. He's the only one who could. He's the only one who can fulfil righteousness. 
It's in him we find righteousness, perfect standing before God. It's in Jesus. So for Jesus to have fulfilled the law, him getting baptised, he's not just leading by example, he's ticking all the boxes, nothing gets missed. And he sets the scene for us to be able to find our righteousness in him, to fulfil all righteousness. But then what happens? He gets baptised, he's led by example. As he comes up out of the water, verse 16, at that moment, heaven was opened. I'd love to have been there. Heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him and a voice from heaven. I wonder what it sounded like. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This moment is the actual beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is significant. Jesus did not start his public ministry without first being filled by the Holy Spirit. This is important. Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's a mystery we'll never understand. He was fully God and fully man simultaneously. The fully man part needed the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfil his ministry and he relied on the Holy Spirit to lead him, guide him for signs and wonders. If he needed that, so did we. The Holy Spirit is here for endorsement, for encouragement, and he's also here for enabling as well. The voice from heaven, as the Holy Spirit lands on Jesus, the voice from heaven from the Father saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. This is my son. This is an endorsement of his sonship. You and I have exactly the same in the Holy Spirit. Exactly the same. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. I know I've spoken this one, I think it was being God's people a couple of years ago. I can't remember which sermon it was. I remember I spoke on this verse. Romans 8, 14 says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He's an endorsement of your sonship. Two verses later, Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Knowing the Spirit is in you is an endorsement of your sonship, just as Jesus had. We're exactly the same. The Holy Spirit is here for endorsement. But also, he's here for enabling. We've got a job to do, which is why I've titled this an action. It's a movie term, but it's specific to us now as well. The Holy Spirit is here, not just for our benefit, he's here to enable us for mission as well. Famous verse, Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. The Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, it all kicks off, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit is an enabler. The Holy Spirit, please, please understand this. I know you know this, but we need to be reminded. The Holy Spirit is not a toy. There's a danger of that sometimes. He's here to help us shake about and speak in a funky tongue and text our friends to tell them I saw an amazing healing the other day. And The Holy Spirit is not a toy, but there's a danger of him being abused as that in the church. Really, I'm not saying that about Beacon necessarily, but just generally. There is abuse. We need to be, the Holy Spirit, he is not a toy. He's the third member of the eternal Godhead and he's here to enable us for mission. He's not just here for our benefit. There's a lateral outworking. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, there's an evangelistic concern. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher from last century. Last century. <laughs> it is, isn't it? 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the baptism of the Spirit shows itself primarily by giving its recipients a great evangelistic concern. Baptism of the Holy Spirit does not primarily show itself by making you shake about or by giving you a funky tongue to sing. The primary, primary outworking of baptism in the Holy Spirit is an evangelistic concern. In my job, most of the time I do jobs and they're two a penny, they're picking up little old ladies who've fallen over and can't get up again, or little kids who've had a fit, or... <laughs> I'm not looking at you specifically, Sheila, it's right. <laughs> look away, look away. <laughs> they're much older than you are. Or kids who've had a fit, or diabetics. I do, I do, they're kind of not belittling them, these people are real, but two a penny to a degree. But now and again, as much as I am skilled as a paramedic, with the skills and the equipment I've been given, now and again I come across a job where, oh, how do I do, what do I do? Oh, my life. When I had a guy recently who rolled down a hill in his, inside his um, forklift truck and then got thrown out halfway down. Looking at his injuries, I'm looking at my crewmates and we're all going, <laughs> what do we do? I don't know. Don't panic. There is nothing like the moment when the helicopter lands, the doctor jumps out and he's alongside you, you're working as a team, dealing with this patient, you feel very, very different. We want the expert by our side, don't we? What a difference it makes. In the same aspect, Julie and I have discussed the dream of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, haven't we, at some point. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but one day, you never know. We'd like to, we'd love to. Inspired by Take That's Gary Barlow and his friends last year. We'd love to. But do you know what? We want an expert mountaineer by our side every step of the way. If we see a mountain of a task before us, we want the expert mountaineer right by us. Sometimes a mission that we know we're given, we look out across the town, across Herne Bay, let alone beyond, it feels gargantuan, doesn't it? We're 40-something people here. There's some others in other churches, the Christ Church and Baptist Church and many others as well, some great churches in town. You add us up and then compare that to 40,000 people in Home Bay alone. It feels like a mountain of a task to get out there, preach the good news and to be Jesus. It feels huge, doesn't it? We want the expert by our side every step of the way, don't we? If you're on mission, you want the best missionary by your side. Jesus. By his Holy Spirit. Like I say, this has become a recurring theme in Beacon just over the past few months. We had a cell leaders meeting a couple of months ago where as much as we felt training is important and we look at various aspects of cell leadership and raising up new leaders and how to deal with group dynamics and things like that, sometimes that's important. But sometimes we just needed to rest back and ask for more of the Holy Spirit. And we did so. And <laughs> what a meeting, wasn't it? Finished two hours late. It was brilliant. God spoke to us and God dealt with us. We had words for each other. It was amazing. We're going to be doing it again at the end of this month for our next cell leaders meeting. We're going to be praying for each other and just asking to receive more of the Holy Spirit. We've been doing it increasingly in cell in general. We've been introducing it more and more on Sundays as much as possible. This needs to be part of our DNA increasingly here at Beacon. We need to never forget to keep receiving and resting in the Holy Spirit. If we've got a mountain of a task before us, we need the expert by our side. That's why Jesus received the Holy Spirit there and then before he started his three-year ministry in the road to the cross. 
because he needed the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit, don't we? Some questions just put in your head before we pray, before we finish. You may know God is calling you to action. I'm not talking about a big, some big ministry like John the Baptist. I mean, something small maybe. You may be stepping out in a gifting that he's put on you. Speaking out when you need to speak out. When things are wrong, maybe. It could be anything. If you know God is calling you to action, what are you going to do about it? Don't hold back. What are you going to do about it? If not, don't despise where you are. Here is where we grow. We grow in the small things, then we're ready for the big things. Some ways, we were talking about this in cell on Thursday, some ways we can sometimes feel Beacon has been a little bit forgotten. Kind of, God, where are you? We acknowledge he's here, we acknowledge he's blessing us, but we're like, God, you call us to make a difference in Home Bay and we feel we're so small and we can feel so inadequate sometimes. God, where are you? We want your sovereign move because it's always down to his sovereign move at the end of the day. Thank God it's not down to us working hard because we knacker ourselves out and prove the point it's not about us. It's God's sovereign move. But we keep asking, Lord, and I believe it's coming. I believe it's coming. Don't feel forgotten because we haven't been. God's on our case here. Okay? Absolutely. But this is where we are prepared for when it happens. I don't want to be caught on the back foot when God makes his move and go, come on in! As much as I ever won't be ready, I want to be ready. Does that make sense? This is where we learn. Don't despise where we are right now. This is where was, a couple of people have had words from me over the past couple of years regarding Beacon about the, the, the phrase fit for service. This is something we need to keep praying into, that we are fit for service. That we are, as, re- as much as we are able to, it's not all about us, it's all about him, but as much as we are able to, to be ready. Don't despise the small things and where we are. When he makes his move, I want to be as ready as I'll ever be. And that starts here, doesn't it? Boy, do we need the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have not forgotten us. We know that to be true. Thank you that you are doing something here. You are building a groundswell here. Lord, help us not to despise where we're at right now. As beacon and as individuals, perhaps as well, Lord. Some of us, we can have a tendency to write ourselves off, to belittle ourselves when we forget that you can have something quite significant for us in the future. Lord, we want to pray into that. We want to seek after that. We want to know your purposes for us as your people, individually and together. But Lord, we just ask that you will lead us, that you will guide us, you will speak openly, clearly to us. Lord, may we not despise where we're at. May we, even now, in the small things, may we bear fruit in keeping with the repentance that you have brought in our hearts. It's only by your Holy Spirit in the first place we could see you for who you are. It's only by your Holy Spirit in the first place we can be turned convicted into confessing our sins for you, to you. Lord God, we just ask by that same Holy Spirit that you will fill us anew, that we might continue to bear fruit, great fruit for you. Great fruit that only you could have brought, not through our works, little old us, Lord, but through your power, through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we say to you, come upon us.
each one of us. We welcome you. Holy Spirit, come. Fill us afresh, fill us to overflowing. That we can't help sharing the good news of Christ. That we can't help being Jesus for the world around us. That we can't help making a difference. That our minds are set on that and less on what we wear and where food's coming from. Lord, let us be more primarily focused on you, knowing that you'll take care of the rest of that anyway. But Lord, we just want to have our eyes fixed on you. Sometimes the world gets our eyes wavering away from that. But Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit to keep our eyes fixed on you, what you set before us, and to keep serving you in the small things and in the big things. Lord, we want to glorify you. We are your sons, endorsed by your Spirit, and we want to honour that. Help us, teach us, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Keep on filling us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, touch each one of us, we pray. In your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. There's questions on the cell notes. They'll be on the website tonight or tomorrow. There's some questions. We'll be looking a little bit more into how we can encourage each other to keep seeking after a continual filling of the Holy Spirit, amongst other things as well. So uh, keep praying. Put it into practice. Coffees and teas are served. Thank you, guys.